to the suffering servant, the only one who can accomplish what God showed us to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. That upon him, that suffering servant could be laid the iniquities of us all. And so that, that concept of atonement, the concept of, of uh, substitutionary penal uh, atonement that is accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so he, he builds that up in the crescendo. And then from Isaiah 53, moving forward, 55, you have the, the invitation going out. Come, all who are thirsty, come. So you have this invitation in, in Isaiah 55. And Isaiah 61, we have the, the beautiful picture that, that Jesus quoted, right? In the, in the synagogue in Nazareth, uh, saying, this scripture is speaking of me, declaring himself to be the Messiah. And then as we come into to chapter 63 on the 66, we have the concept of a new heaven and a new earth, that there will be a day of judgment for the wicked, and there will be deliverance for the righteous. But God is very clear to let everybody know that the righteous isn't something that you have attained for yourself. Nobody is righteous. So if God's judgment came, everybody burns with the wicked. We are all wicked. That's the point. How did we get righteous? Isaiah 6, right? The suffering servant. His atonement for us. It's the righteousness of God given to us as a gift by faith that we receive from him. That is what delivers us from the judgment that is to come. Right, So this is the idea he's been building on. Last week we looked at the new heaven and the new earth. We talked about uh, you know, how people always love to get this thing wrong. Right, we have, we have pictures of the lion and the lamb laying down. But that's not in the Bible anywhere. So the lion is in the Bible and the lamb is in the Bible. They're just not together. So you have lions eating straw like ox and you have wolf lying down with the lamb. Right? So, but lion and lamb, that's, that's signifies the two comings of Christ, right? He came as the lamb, when John would declare, when he pointed out Jesus and said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? The next time he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's different altogether. First time he came on a donkey, right? Signifying, illustrating peace. The second time he comes on a white horse, read the book of Revelation. And so he will return as the conquering king uh, on that time. Those are the, the illustrations that are laid out. So when we look at Isaiah 66 and we try to culminate all of these ideas, new heaven and new earth, he's going to be talking about the concept, kind of molding all these things together. We're talking about the idea of the day of rejoicing. And sometimes, here's some of the trick, and, and I guess everybody has to kind of decide for themselves where they land, but I'm not certain that everything that Isaiah talks about or that the prophets lay out that we should hold on to as a absolute literal fulfillment, that this exact thing is going to happen, maybe we ought to see it as what is he illustrating for us. For example, you have three battles in the Bible that are Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38. You have Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. Now, they may be three separate, distinct battles that follow a exact timeline. 
but you're, you have a hard time putting all those pieces together. They may, some people say, illustrate all, all, just one battle, the same battle, but, but that doesn't seem to work for me very well either. Maybe they illustrate the reality that one day God's going to put down evil once and for all. And when he puts it down, it's going to be done. So, you know, you have to do, you got to be the student of the scripture, right? So you got to be the student who says, you know what, I'm going to go through, but don't just, you know, pick up your favorite book and say, you know, Hal's my guy. So whatever Hal says, I'm going to follow or whatever Heiser says, I'm going to follow or whatever White says, I'm going to follow or whatever your guy, whoever your guy is. Look at it. Yeah. Be careful. If it's me, you're in serious trouble. So what I'm saying is we want to think about, we, we need to think through those things. How, how were these things received by the people that Isaiah delivered them to? And, and what were they looking for? And what was the, what was the moral? What was the, what was the end goal? So ask yourself those questions as we look at the scripture laid out before us tonight and, and see where the Holy Spirit would lead you. So the first thing we want to talk about, verse 1 of Isaiah 66, is this idea. Let me ask you this question. Does God want a temple or people? Well, that's interesting, right? Because you got something to do with Ezekiel 40 through 48. Ezekiel 40 through 48 is a temple that fits somewhere or is it? Is it literal or isn't it? Uh, some people say that the temple in, uh, in Ezekiel 40 through 48, that's the temple in the millennial reign. But there's a problem. You have sacrifices taking place in that temple. And the book of Hebrews says there's no more sacrifices. Jesus Christ was the last sacrifice. So when we come to making biblical interpretation and deciding whether something is literal or not, you don't get to put all those things on the shelf and say, we're not going to deal with that. Does that make sense? You don't get to say, um, yeah, well, that doesn't, that, that currently doesn't fit in my eschatology. <laughs> eschatology does not see 2020. All right. So eschatology is study of end times end things. How does the end work out? And nowhere in the history of God's people did they have that figured out. So it's a little arrogant for us to be fairly certain that we got it all figured out, right? So we just have to be aware of the problems. I'm not telling you to scrap anything. I'm just saying be aware of all those pieces and then decide, yeah, is this something that's literal or is this something that's figurative? Because Paul would declare twice in the Bible, once that you individually are the temple of God and secondarily the church is the temple of God. Is that what's being illustrated in Ezekiel 40 to 48? Maybe. Are you certain it's not? Those are the kind of things we want to ask ourselves as we go through Scripture. So we're saying the first question that I want to ask, looking at Isaiah 66, and what I think God's saying, you just answered, right? Does God want a temple? It's like my, when my kids were little and they'd go into the garage and they'd take a whole roll of duct tape and build a fort out of it, right? I had everything, every tool I owned became a sword at some point. And I have to go around in the backyard and find it because they created from my hedge clippers, you know, take them apart. You have a perfect sword. And then it wasn't silver enough. So they use all the duct tape to tape the, the blade so it looks like a blade. And, 
So they're making these things. Well, I think of that when I look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven's my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you're going to build for me? It's like I, my kids making forts or creating things for me, but they used all my stuff. Right? You, you get what I'm saying? They went in, and so it's cool, and, 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 and a father is going to appreciate that and, and look for opportunities to build up his children. And I think it's the same way. When God's people built the temple for him, what, do you think that that was all, you know, God's like, yeah, that's just, you know, dust. That's all stuff I made. For them, it was magnificent, right? Look how beautiful it is. But think about God when he would tell his people to make the altar. What did he tell them to do? He said, don't use tools on it. Just use the stones you find on the ground. Why? Because he wants the eye to see the sacrifice, not the altar. So when we go to the temple and we see all the gold and all the beauty and all the majesty, sure, I think there, that still illustrates Christ and there's a lot of good things that we want to pull from that. But, but I don't know, was that, was that the... When God gave them instructions to build, what did he give them instructions to build? He gave them instructions, very specific instructions on a tabernacle. Do you remember? And in order to discover the beauty of the tabernacle, what did you have to do? You had to go inside. Because outside, it'll just look like a tent covered with camel hair or whatever, right? Goat hair. And it was nothing fancy. You got inside and you saw all the beauty. Isn't that how it is in a relationship with Jesus Christ? When you stand outside and you're not in it, do you really know what you're looking at? But when you come inside, but then when we come to the temple, it was different, right? The temple, things shifted. And then keep in mind, Solomon's temple, that... At the time of Christ, that's not what we had. What do we have at the time of Christ? We had Herod's temple, right? Do so you remember when the people came out of exile and came back to the land? It was a very small group. And they came back to the land and they didn't have the skilled guys. Those guys were gone. And all the guys who the thing that, that God said, hey, I gifted this guy and I gifted this guy. You remember the stories, right? When you talk about the the building, Solomon's going to build the temple, God said, but... But most of those things were associated with the tabernacle, not the temple. So when God says, what, what are you going to build for me? I, I sit in the heavens and I put my feet on the earth. This is all mine. Everything, I'm bigger than any building you're going to put together, right? I'm, I'm grander. I'm everywhere. I'm, I'm able to touch everything. So what will be the place of my rest? Now, these are rhetorical questions that God is asking through Isaiah to say, are, have you forgotten the things that are really important? Right? We, we do this long project and these long rebuilds of, of the temple and stuff. And, but when Jesus walks out, what does he say? See, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is empty. God's not here. That's what he's saying. So when we look here, Isaiah, as he's thinking about these, he says in verse 2, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. You're, you're using my duct tape, you're using all my stuff. It's cool. But, um, you know, I've got a better place in mind. Than, than this building. But listen to what he says at the end of verse 2. Here's where he shifts and says, here's what I'm really looking for. I'm not really looking for a building. 
Right? What's he say? But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, trembles at my word. So God says, this is the person I'm looking for. This is, you know, it's cool. Great. You know, it's a great, it's, it's a beautiful building. You know, I'm sure for God, he's like, that's the best you could do. I understand. Because he understands our limitation, right? But we have to understand that God is so transcendent from us. And we, we, lose, we lose such focus on that reality. I mean, just think, I just always keep, keep falling back to this idea with my, with my puppy. You know, I'm trying to teach a dog. And I think, this might be easier if I could become a dog and I could just tell him, right? But then I'd be limited. I could only use the, 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 the language he understood, right? I could only use illustrations that he understood. Now, while I'm trying to explain to him, I know more than he does about the world, right? Because I understand what the street is like and what cars are and how dangerous these things can be. And I can understand all those things. But I've got to be able to, to explain all of that in a way that dog understands. And I don't know the limitations of, of a bark, Right? How much information can you actually get across by barking to one another? And wh- however ridiculous that illustration is, it is, it is so much less than Yahweh becoming a man and, and teaching us. He's limited. He knows far more than he can express to us through our ability to understand. He's limited by us. Not in himself. We only have so many words, right? So many letters. So much understanding. He can only, he can only deliver so many of those things. He's saying, this is all, this is all, it's so much bigger. But look, what I really want, I just want you. It's cool. My kids build me things for Father's Day when they were little and stuff. And that's great. But really, what I really want, I just want them. I want them. I want the person. I don't care so much about this stuff. And I think that's what God's getting across to him. Look, I, what are you going to build me? I, I, I dwell in the heavens. It's all mine. I want you. But I want you in a certain way. I want you humble, contrite, and trembling. That's interesting, isn't it? I want you humble. Humble means I have to acknowledge the reality that I am infinitely less than he. And we have a hard time with that. But if we, if you understand my illustration between me and the dog, then it, and then you can understand the distance between a sovereign, all powerful Yahweh and me. He's not, he could explain to you and I using his understanding the Trinity in such a way we could absolutely grasp it, but he's limited by our understanding. He's limited by our language. He's limited by us. If he spoke to us in Yahwezian, I don't know if that's such a thing. If he spoke to us in, 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 you understand, in hit by hit, using his wisdom, he has words for who he is. We don't. It's God who has covered the chasm to come to us, to, to open up our eyes. And what does he want from us? Humility. Humble. I'm less. I'm broken. Uh, I am, 
I am only whole or complete in him. That's what Isaiah 53 says. By his stripes, his wounds make me whole. So same thing, it's his wounds. So I'm made complete in him. I want to be humble. I want to be contrite. That's repentant. Understanding the areas where I fall short, right? And then trembling at his word. Yes, God, you are who you say you are. You are who you say you are. The Lord says, this is what I want. In Psalm 34, 18, it says, the Lord is near to who? The brokenhearted, right? God says, um, blessed are the meek, right? The gentle. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why, why does he say those things? Because those are the people that he came to. The people who lived in the street. It's not many rich, not many wealthy, not many powerful were called. Didn't say not any, he just said not many. But where did he go? Jesus would say to the Father in Matthew 11, somewhere around 11.25, right? He would say, I thank you God that you've revealed these things to babes and not to the wise. I don't know if anybody's really wise, but the important thing about a babe is a babe knows it doesn't know anything. Do we understand that? The Lord's near to the broken in hearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, 17 says the sacrifices of God. What is it that God's looking for from us? A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, these you will not despise. What does the scripture say? The scripture tells us that God will save anyone who calls upon his name. That requires humility. A proud person is not going to call. Proud people don't call for help. Proud people figure out how to do it themselves. Broken people, humble people, they reach out. Right? Help, help. And those are the ones that the Lord responds to. Those are the ones it comes to. So he's going to describe. Now, he's looking for the humble, the contrite, and those that tremble at his word. That that look at the word of God as the final arbiter in their life. That's what that means. Trembling at the word means I'm going to be obedient to what God said, not obedient to what I want. I'm going to say this is what God says, that that's the final rule. That's the final rule. So, so what, what happens in verse 3? He says, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. So he's saying, look, they come and they're going through the motions, right? We're doing the things. But you might as well be killing a man as bringing an ox for a sacrifice because that's how far your heart is removed from me. He says, my people draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They don't really want me. And the unfortunate thing is God is able to tell. God knows. So he's saying, look, these people, it's not any good. Why? What's wrong? These have chosen their own ways. They've chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abomination. So not only have they chosen not God's way, but their own way, but they're, they're delighting in abominations. Now, 
Don't go crazy over abominations. Make it easy. Go to Proverbs and say, these six things are an abomination to the Lord. Yea, seven. And the first one is a proud look. Lying tongue. Feet swift to shed blood. There, there's, there's simple things. There's simple things that we are, that, that man is able to choose and then say, I delight in that, not in this. I, w- I would rather do all these things than to confess those things humbly before the Lord and seek his forgiveness. So he says, you've chosen your way. Your soul delights in what is wrong. So the Lord says, verse 4, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. I called. Is, is it that God didn't give opportunity? Is it that the person's reprobate and they have no opportunity? What God's not what God says. God says, I called. You didn't answer. I reach out. You haven't come. I also will choose harsh treatment for them. Bring their fears. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I don't delight. So they chose to walk in disobedience to what God's word declares. It's a scary world these days because I tell you the truth. I've, in the last three weeks, I've heard this phrase more than, than in the last nine years before that. And that is this idea. People have this idea of walking in subjectivity and saying, well, I just want to walk in the fullness of the spirit. Now, I do too. I want to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. But when somebody asks me, are you Spirit-filled? Usually I, I prepare to be irritated. Because what they mean is, by Spirit-filled, is not, am I filled with the Spirit? Is do I speak in tongues enough? Do I prophesy enough? Do I, do I you know, participate in those gifts? Which I believe are for today. But that what they mean is, is that a part of how we do service? Because otherwise you're not really spirit-filled. That's the, that's the point. And then usually the, the, the issue is that I, I, I would rather be just led by the Spirit than led by this, the, the Word of God. That's so, that's so restrictive. Yeah, I think that's where that's all supposed to come from, isn't it? Is it not supposed to come from that? Is it not? Are we not supposed to be governed by the Word of God? They like to tell me, well, the the disciples were led by the Spirit. They didn't have the Bible. And I get a little shudder. Well, yeah, they didn't have the King James, but they had a Bible. Jesus read from the Scriptures all the time. What Paul, the first day he was saved, it's, Scripture says he went in and proved that Jesus was the Christ from the Scriptures. Yeah, they were still governed. They would just use the Old Testament. The New Testament was being written. They were still, they're still governed. They're still holding fast to what God's Word teaches, right? So when the Lord lays out these things, look, I don't want to choose what my heart delights in. I want to choose what God's heart delights in. I want to be filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit and led by the Spirit and everything that I do. But it will be governed by what God has said about His Spirit. Not just randomly about how I feel or what I think. Uh, Just in case we think God hasn't given us those things, He has. 
Read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. He's told us how it ought to look. How those things ought to be. Will we follow that? Will we be obedient? Do we want to choose the things that, that bring delight to him? Is that our goal? Or is my goal to bring delight to me? Is the goal to shine a light and glorify the Lord by what I do? Or is it to shine a light on me and glorify myself? Those are very different things, right? So this is what I think the Lord is, is coming across. This is what he wants them to understand. Look, I, I am going to punish these. Why? Because of what they chose. They chose their own way. They chose to do it their way and to delight themselves and not to delight me because they were more concerned with that than with honoring the Lord. Um, in verse 5, he, he wants us to know that his promises are going to be fulfilled. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at my word. Now, now he's talking about those with whom his soul delights, right? The ones who are humble and contrite and tremble at his word. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we might see your joy. But it is they who will be put to shame. God says, when you stood up and... And people threw you out because they said they threw you out in my name because you're not you're not standing for what you ought to stand for. You're not you 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 are standing on the truth of the word. You tremble at the word, right? You're saying this is what the word of God teaches, and you're standing on that. But they throw you out saying they're doing the Lord Lord's work. He said, Don't worry about it. You you are the one who will find joy, and they the one who will find shame. So when we are judging or considering one's theology or the idea, there's only, this is the thing. Truth is, is uh, got to be anchored in something bigger than me. If truth is only anchored in me and my opinion, then it's only as good as I am. And I'm not that good. If truth is anchored in God's word, that's different. Now, I don't have to justify everything that God said. It doesn't have to make sense to me. God's bigger than I am, right? So I'm anchored to his truth. So I don't have to convince the, the person on the corner of Planned Parenthood that wants to go in and terminate their pregnancy that it is murder. I don't have to convince them of that. I just have to be willing to stand in the gap. So that someone is there to blow the warning. Because if nobody's there, what happens? That's right. I have set you as a watcher on the wall. Your job is to sound the warning. Sound the warning. If nobody sounds a warning, what happens? Then we have feet swift to shed blood. And nobody standing in the gap. So we need to have this attitude that says, oh, I'm going to stand for the Lord. And then the, the world will, may hate me. I've been hated by plenty of people. At some point, you get used to it. <coughs> A little bit. Sometimes it still hurts. But for the most part, you know, the skin gets a little thicker. But you know what? Who do you want? Do you want to be loved by men or do you want to be honoring God? You can't do both. 
if I honor God, I'm going to be hated by men. Isn't that how it was for Jesus? So, last thing I remember, Jesus said, uh, uh, the, the teacher is, it, it, the student is not greater than the master, right? If the world hated me, it will hate you too. You can't have it both ways. No, you don't have to. That doesn't mean you have to go out looking for the hatred, causing the hatred. Let that just be the willingness by which we stand for the Lord. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. They throw them out, but God says it will be them that will be put to shame. Look at verse 6. The sound of an uproar from the city, the sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord, rendering recompense to his enemies, returning in kind. There will come a day. This is exactly the thing I think that haunted Paul all his life. Okay? The recompense. Paul killed a lot of Christians and he brought a lot of hardship, right? When he was persecuting the church. And then he finds out all that time he did that. He thought he was doing something to honor the Lord, right? He was honoring God. Jesus said there will come a day when men will think they're doing good for the Lord by punishing you. That's what they'll think. But God says, I will repay. Don't worry about it. There will be recompense. There will be payday someday. And for Paul, I think one of the things, you know, when Paul gets saved, I think, I think the things that tormented him at night were the faces that he saw over and over again. And I think he was forgiven. I, I don't think it's God punishing him. I just think that's part of life. Do you not have regrets? I still have faces I see of people I've wronged in my life that are long past being able to do anything about. And so I think those are some of the things that, so this is the recompense. Hey, there will be a day when God will return in kind to his enemies. Now he says in verse 7, here's God's plan in, in accordance with his people. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in a day? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? As soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. The idea that God's going to birth a nation in a day. It's going to be, when God comes and sets up his kingdom, it's going to be, boom, there it is. There it is. Here it has come. The nation brought forth in a day God is able to do it. He is able to accomplish it. It's not something that we are going to accomplish. It's something that God will accomplish. Look at verse 9. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause it to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says God? God's saying, look, I have the power to give birth to a new heavens and a new earth. To fulfill the eschatological plan, the and bringing it together, wrapping it all up in a bow. He's saying, I'm not going to stop in the middle. What I start, I will finish. It will come to pass. God is going to accomplish it. And what will happen to the people? In verse 10, they will rejoice. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her. Enjoy all you who mourn over her. 
Well, right now, things are not so great, but there is coming a day when all will be made right. When, in verse 11, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her, consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight of her glorious abundance. That, that, that picture of the new Jerusalem, the, the new heaven, the new earth, that glorious place that God has for him, where man will finally find satiation. Even the Rolling Stones will be able to sing a different song. Right? This man has a hard time being satisfied with anything here. But there will be a day when man will be satisfied with what God has provided for him. There. He will be satisfied. And they will experience peace. Look at verse 12. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations shall shall be like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and be carried on her hip and bounced on her knees. The idea of comfort, protection, provision, safety. Not necessarily literal in the sense that somehow Jerusalem is going to become our mother and bounce us on her knee. But the idea that that which God has prepared for us is going to be filled with joy, satisfaction, safety, comfort. That those are the things that God is saying that, that we will find. That all the nations will bring their abundance. Once upon a time, all the nations hated. Well, that's not going to be the case anymore. The nations aren't going to hate. The nations will, will want to be a part of all that God has provided. In verse 13, as a mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You will be comforted in Jerusalem. Now, Nowadays, there's lots of times we need comfort. But look, God's saying, man, there's a day. There will be a day where you will have all the comfort you need from me, from the Lord. You shall see, your heart will rejoice, your bones will flourish like the grass. The hand of the Lord will be known to his servants and he will show his indignation against his enemies. The point is, God's there. You don't have to wonder, where are you, Lord? He says, my, you're going to see my hand. You're going to see me, because I'm in the midst. What is it that Revelation declares? There will be no sun, but will there be light? Yes, because the Lord is the light. Yeah, so we're gonna, he's going to be everywhere. We're going to be with him. There will be... Connection with the Lord. We will see Him. You will know the indignation against the enemies. You will know, you will know that God has judged the wicked and delivered the righteous. In verse 15, for behold, the Lord will come in fire, his chariots like whirlwind, to render his anger and fury and in his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. When God comes, remember we talked about, there's the day of the Lord, right? And the year of his favor. The year of his favor is long. The opportunity for grace, we're still standing in. The day God comes in judgment, it's too, day, too, too late to, to 
experience the grace of God. Now's the time to experience the grace of God, the salvation of the Lord. When that day comes, the picture of his coming, God will come and he will judge. Judgment will be delivered. Punishment will be uh, grafted out. Practices will be utterly washed away. He says in verse 17, those who sanctify and purify themselves and go into the gardens, following uh, one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. We talked about it last time. Those who sanctify and purify themselves <clears throat> and go into the gardens. That's a picture of practicing sexual immorality. Remember, all religious practices in, in the pagan world were built around sex. It's not any different. We just don't call that a religion anymore, or not very often. I, I assume there are probably some who do, but but the pra- that was what the practice was about. That was, that was how you worshiped. That's why it was easy to get worshipers. People liked it, right? Where do we go? We go out to the gardens. And so that's how it was. That's how it is. Self-righteous... Um, Worship in, in, in rebellion against God. God says, these are who will be judged, the wicked that will be judged. For in verse 18, he says, for I know their works. I know their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all the nations in tongue and they will see my glory. <clears throat> God says that a lot, by the way. I know their works. He says it in two chapters in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3. He says it about every single church that he describes. I know their works. I know their works. Seven times. I know their works. I know their works. God knows what's going on. He understands what is happening. He says, I know them. And it's describing that judgment. He knows our works. That's his people. He knows their works as well. That's why he can be the righteous judge. Not because somehow I became so holy and right, but because I put my trust in him. I received what he promised to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Lord, what do I do? I'm an unclean man. I have unclean lips. I'm broken. I'm a mess. I, I don't think I can do anything for you. And the Lord says, wait a minute. And he has an angel grab a coal from the altar and touches his lips. And what does he say? Your sin is purged. What does he do in Isaiah 53? All the iniquity of the world is placed on the suffering servant. Well, who's the suffering servant? According to Isaiah 61, Jesus declared he was. It's me. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's how we become righteous. My work, that's the work that he needs to know. When Jesus was asked, what must I do to do the works of God? What did Jesus say? Believe on the one whom the Father sent. Believe. Put your faith and trust in in that purge of our sin that Jesus Christ is offering. That's the work. I know your works. That's how we do the works of God. That's how we fulfill God's purpose. And then his glory is revealed in verse 19. He says, I will set a sign among them and from them I will send survivors to the nations. I love this. Survivors, yeah, survivors. The people who have been being tortured and hated and and taken advantage of. God says, those are the guys I'm going to use as my heralds. 
They're the ones that are going to take the message to the nations. I'm going to use the foolishness of the message preached by the wretches of this world. Because I don't use many, I don't use many wise, many noble, many strong. I use the foolish things of the world to put to shame the mighty, right? And so here he is. Why not? Yeah, there's not many Kanyes, but there's at least one. And and you know what? Let God do what He's going to do. I'm okay. Let God be. God can be in charge. I'm good. He's good with it. He's going to send survivors to the nations and they will draw the bow to Tubal and Jovan and to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory and they will declare my glory among the nations. They're going to go and proclaim. That's the message preached. That's the gospel going forth. A bunch of fishermen, not a bunch of kings. A tax collector everybody hated. An old prostitute. Right? Isn't that who he sent? Women he called to be his first witnesses. People who everybody despised. They would never, they would never take a woman's account for anything in those days. But those are the people Jesus sent. Why? So your eyes wouldn't be on the altar. Your eyes would be on the sacrifice. Because he doesn't want the temple. He wants the people. In all their brokenness and twistedness, he wants them. So that he can show you what he can accomplish. Verse 21, and some of them, or I'm sorry, verse 20. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. On horses and chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries as camels. I don't know why they use the word dromedary. Why can't they just say camel? I don't understand. Is that what the deal is? Well, who cares? Does it make a difference? One hump or two hump? I don't know. Maybe it does. <clears throat> On dromedaries. <laughs> it just cracks me up the words they choose. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of God. So here they come. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Come and where? To his holy mountain. Come and where? To glorify the Lord. They've responded to the heralds, to those who have, to the survivors, that who were conquered, who have become the conquerors. And some of them, he says, I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. And, the, and then, for, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall, that I make shall remain before me, so shall your offspring and your name remain. God says, when I make a new heaven and a new earth, that's eternal, and so are you. And so are your kids. So are those who are with me. From new moon to new moon, Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh will come and worship before me, declares the Lord. So it's not going to be screwed up. We're not going to have to worry or argue anymore about how it should look. Because we'll understand, we'll know we won't be limited in our understanding anymore. We won't be limited anymore by language. We won't be limited by any of those things. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. We'll know as we are known. 
So we'll, we'll enter into God says, man, all flesh will come and worship before me. Now people trip out and they say, oh, does that mean everything's going to be church? No. What's wrong with you? No, everything's not going to be church. Well, it just says you're going to worship. That's because that's how we do it. We don't know what we're doing. We're just doing the best we can. We're trying to figure it out. Didn't you just hear me say, now we see darkly, then we'll see? We'll understand how it is that our lives lived out before God, accomplishing His purpose, our worship unto the Lord. Flying from here to Pluto is going to worship God. Whatever things it is that God has us doing, that will be worship to Him. It is how we live and experience what God has made for us that will bring worship to him. Everyone's going to worship the Lord by everything they do. Because I will finally do what I was meant to do. What a beautiful picture. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. He says, well, there, it's like being able to look into the mouth of hell, right? There, there will be the knowledge of why I don't want to be the wicked. Why I want to walk with the Lord. There will be at least some remembrance Right? Some way that we see it, that we know it. I think it'd be a little more natural than looking out over the gate and seeing all the dead bodies. You know, I don't know. I'm not not always a literalist, so I don't know that we'll be standing there looking over the wall of New Jerusalem going, look at all the dead people. I think we'll remember all of that when we look at Jesus and we see him. Because we look at the last man-made thing left, right? The scars on the Savior that he bore for me. The price he paid so that I could be there. Wow, that's all the remembrance I'm going to need. To look into those eyes of love, see that one scarred body. Pretty crazy, you know? Those scars are eternal, man. They're eternal. What do they say? I love you enough to pay what you couldn't pay. So you could be here fulfilling your purpose. That seems like a good way to go. Isaiah 66, bringing together the idea. What what is the point of making Israel into that which she ought to be? Because it's there that she fulfills the purpose for which God made her. It's where we fulfill our purpose for which we've been made. It's where we are finally set free of the noose of sin that our forefathers put around our necks. Oh, before we get too proud, we've put a few more loops in it, right? But he's delivered us. He's delivered us. And there will be a day. That's a good thing to look forward to, right? The fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose. Amen?
Won't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We can study your word, open the scriptures. God, I pray that we uh, we just come to a fuller understanding of of just your work, God, that work of salvation that you've wrought. God, I pray that we're able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and width and breadth of the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we recognize, man, God could have just said in the beginning, you're all not worth anything and I'll just wipe it all out and start over. But instead he said, no, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to purge your sin. I'm going to make a way where there is no way. Because he is a God who delights in salvation, redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He is a God that uses words like year when he describes grace and day when he describes wrath. Because he is quick to forgive. Jonah even said, Lord, I knew you would forgive these dirty, no good people. He knew because that is God's character. So God, as we look and as we study, as we see, we know there's a day of judgment. We know there's a time for the destruction of the wicked, God. But the warning is not is placed there so that we would say, it's not this day. Today is a day of salvation. So God, may we take your truth. May we, the survivors, be your heralds to go to all the nations making disciples so that when the new Jerusalem is, is brought forth, men from every tribe, nation, and tongue are drawing close to you, God, because they recognized their own wretchedness and look to you for salvation. So God, help us understand and recognize who you are, that we know you, that we would be faithful unto you, God, and that we would bring honor and glory to your name. In the life we live, Lord, we ask your blessing tonight. Anoint this time as we close in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. that lay between us how high the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name 